Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Michael Muhammad Ahmed. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week, we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. To SEO broadcast from the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundagara people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land, unceded land. Treaty was never made in Australia. Now, Michael Muhammad Ahmed is the author of The Tribe and the Lebs, which was shortlisted for the 2019 Miles Franklin Award. He edited the After Australia collection. He's a founding director of Sweatshop Literacy Movement. You have met him on the show before, and today he is joining us to discuss his new novel, The Other Half of You. Banny Adam knows that his family expects him to do the tribe proud to marry the right kind of girl and grow their family. But Banny knows that this is not the only way to be a good son, a good man. The other half of you is Banny telling the story of this life and this love to his son, Khalil, to help Khalil understand the complexity of his identity as a Muslim, an Australian and a man, Banny must tell both halves of that story. In part one of this conversation, Muhammad and I are going to explore love, the other half of you as a love story, and also the necessity of telling stories that represent, that engage, and potentially transform the communities that they represent. Join me as we discover Michael Muhammad Ahmed's The Other Half of You. Muhammad, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Andrew. And also, I always like to begin our interviews by saying, Assalamu alaikum, which means peace be upon you. Wa alaikum assalam. Beautiful. Um, now, look, there is so much to say about the other half of you. So much of my reading is wrapped up in my responses and my feelings about that reading of the ideas that you're working with. It's a really personal response to a novel whose ideas I, I felt were also perhaps more universal. Now, I want to describe the other half of you as the story of a man teaching his son about the ways that he's made mistakes and carried on. But then equally, it's, it's a love story about how this man discovered the love that created his beautiful child. I haven't even touched here on the cultural discussions that you engage in. So I I thought maybe I should just stop for a sec and ask, how do you describe the other half of you? Yeah, well, I really appreciate um, your initial interpretation. Uh, It's interesting that you acknowledge that you haven't even touched on the cultural elements because the word man is very broad to me. Um, and so I think it's, it's very specifically about a man of color or uh, even more specifically about an Arab Muslim man uh, growing up in the western suburbs of Sydney. And um, this particular man at this particular moment in time is grappling with fatherhood and um, preparing his son for the world that he's going to inherit. And so I, I wrote the book as uh, a literal letter to my son, Khalil, who um, is mixed race. His mum's Anglo-Australian and his dad, myself, is Arab-Australian Muslim. And I kind of wanted to tell him the story of how he got here. It was, as you would know from having read the book, it was a difficult journey for me as um, as an Arab-Australian Muslim man, but also for his mum as an Anglo-Australian woman from a very secular, atheistic home. Um, and so I wanted to 
explain to Khalil uh, what what it took um, in you know contemporary Australia for this uh, for his life to come into existence. It's there is so much there that I want to I want to unpack, and I, I hope the whole conversation actually does that. The first thing that that occurs to me is yeah, I I came to this realization that. I was able to, and I think when we read books, we often look for and talk about universality of themes, but uh, that can be a trap, I think, is what you've acknowledged there, because in seeing universality, we ignore specificity and we we really can fail to get to some of the, the things that are, are very important to talk about. And, and maybe this is a good point to sort of look at the way the other half of you, it's situated very firmly within your body of work. So for readers and fans of the tribe and the lebs, they'll find not only a continuation of the story of Barney Adam, but also a continuation of his quest for identity, both as an individual, within his family, within his religion, within his society at large. Can you, can you maybe talk a little bit about where the other half of you sits within that kind of larger body of work? Yeah, that's such a big question. Um, and uh, I want to rewind to the beginning of your question. So you started by talking about specificity versus yeah. universality. I find that when you write in, a, in, a, in, in what you would consider to be the every man, that's, that's a cliched uh, concept that a lot of people use you actually alienate everybody. I think the idea of universality is a trap and um, that uh, it's really when you get specific, it's when you locate um, an experience and an identity within a very particular time and place. In my, in my case, being an Arab Australian Muslim man growing up in uh, Western Sydney in the post 9-11 era, um, I think that's when the work becomes immediately accessible because that's when an audience is taken out of their context and put into literally the experience of another human being. Whereas I think when you do that, you know, that fantasy idea of like, you know, Laurence Olivier doing Hamlet on the mountain tops, you know, speaking out to the wind, it pretty much um, doesn't relate to anybody's experience mm. enough for them to connect with it. So that's the first point I want to make. Mm. Second point, in terms of your question about where the other half of you fits within my body of work, um, yes, so my autobiographical alter ego is a character, I, a fictional character I created named Danny Adams. And um, it's very important firstly to note that, um, that the, the genre I work in is called autobiographical fiction. Uh, this is important to, to note because I, I, really, I think it's really significant for readers not to interpret my work as a personal um, uh, account or as a m memoir but rather as a, as, a, as a work of creative art and that I, as a creative artist who has a, happens to have a doctorate in literature and creative writing, um, am very interested in the skill and the, and the craft of, of storytelling. Um, and so Banny Adam is uh, the name that I gave this character that I've been developing for three novels now. And um, the, the, the name Banny Adam doesn't actually mean, um, it's not actually a name in Arabic, it's a term. It means humankind. And, and we, uh, more literally, it, it, it translates to the child of Adam. And so I gave uh, Bani that name because I think Arab Muslims um, in the West and around the world are generally dehumanized very often. We, we see this with uh, what's going on in Palestine at the moment, uh, this way in which we, we're kind of given these, you know, these stories about uh, Arab and Muslim communities where they have, where they have a kind of 
uh, lesser value than other communities. And so a large uh, aspect of my work is about reclaiming the humanity of Arab and Muslim communities and, and Arab and Muslim identity. And that's why, so that's why I gave the name uh, Bani Adam to my main character. Now, the third thing I'll say, and the final thing I'll say before you can move on to your next question, is that um, the, the tribe looks at the experience of Arab and Muslim identity from a childhood lens. Bani is a, a little boy in, in the first novel. In the lebs, uh, Bani is a teenager, so it looks at the teenage years. And uh, in the lebs, it's, it's very important because it's looking at the teenage years at the time of the September 11 attack. So it's a pivotal moment in the world. And, you know, if you're a young Arab Muslim uh, Australian at that time, you're already negotiating all the, all the challenges that come with puberty, plus you have to confront this huge global phenomenon. Um, okay, and so the third book that I've written now is really looking at the experience of being an Arab Australian Muslim man um, as an adult and what, what, what challenges we face as adults and what and and mainly what it what it means to bring it, to be bringing the next generation into this world there's a couple of things i want to i want to before we jump into the book i actually want to think a little bit about reading because we talked there you were, we were talking about specificity specificity and universality and in your in your job your role your uh, as a, a creator an artist a writer you talked about going for specificity that is where that is where the book becomes real. Do you have any tips as a reader, though? Because I feel like as readers, universality becomes a way into any piece of art. We try to find something that w- that we can resonate with. But as we've said, that can also be a trap. Do you have a way of reading? Do you have a way that you approach reading that allows you to balance those two tensions? Yeah, um, that's a very good question. What, what I would say is that to me, reading and writing is not should not be seen as an outcome um it should uh, to me it's not the end goal Uh, what it should be interpreted as is a tool um for me the goal of the tool of reading and writing is transformation and the the historical narratives around reading and writing is that it, it it transforms societies um you know this interview will be aired on the radio, but what our viewers can't see that you can see because we're doing this through Zoom is you can see a, a picture behind me of Malcolm X uh, in this uh, video call that you and I are conducting right now. And the thing about Malcolm X is he's one of the most significant uh, African-American civil rights leaders that ever lived. And uh, if you read the autobiography of Malcolm X, you see how throughout the entire book he's charting his intellectual development through reading. And he, he, he explains how his life transformed through the act of reading, in his case, um, through developing a self-made and a homemade education while he was in prison. Um, and so for me, the way I read is in an, it, I, I read it in a way, I read literature and art in a way that attempts to be open to the possibility that by the time I'm at the end of a book, I will have transformed. Now, I don't think every book does that because I don't think every book, every piece of writing is good. But the, but good literature will fundamentally transform you one way or another. Um, I did my PhD actually on the autobiography of Malcolm X and what the autobiography of Malcolm X can teach, um, minorities in Australia, uh, specifically through reading. And, you know, just using the autobiography of Malcolm X as an example of my, my point, I remember being radically transformed and intellectually transformed by the time I'd finished reading that book. 
And that's what I think we should do. I, I, you know, I write um, for my audience, hoping that somehow I can evoke some kind of change in them, specifically a change in the way they see Arab and Muslim communities. So let's now take that into our discussion, into our reading, and, and challenge our listeners to think about that reading and writing process as, as coming into being um, and potentially transformative. And that really relates, again, to the story. At the beginning of the story, it, it opens with a kind of invocation. Bani seems to be bringing his son Khalil into existence through naming him, before then describing the very tangible moment of Khalil's coming into existence at birth. Now, sons and fathers, their interactions of power and love are woven throughout the book. Bani tells Khalil in that opening page, you brought me here, now let me take you back. It's, it's sort of like almost the telling of the story is the bringing of Khalil into being. Can you reflect on that relationship of, of fathers and sons and that, that almost loop that, that happens? Yeah, there's, um, there's so many things I have to say about this. Thank you. So firstly, I want to talk about the literary form and then I'll talk about um, the politics around the storytelling between fathers and sons specifically for men of color. Um, the, the, the literary form that I experimented with in this book is called proleptic writing. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a style of writing where there's a lot of foreshadowing. You can kind of see what's coming before it comes, you know? Um, and it, it's, a, it's a, a slightly controversial form because if you give away where the story is going, it raises the question, what's the point of reading it then? And... There are quite a few famous books that do this, that, that, that look at the, um, that look, that, that look at the story almost retrospectively. And there's a lot of foreshadowing. Uh, I, I feel compelled to point out as one of the few experts in Australia on the autobiography of Malcolm X, that, that, the, that Malcolm's autobiography does a lot of foreshadowing and proleptic writing. There's also another incredibly important, um, African American novel called Jazz by, um, Tony Morrison, and, and there's quite a few references to jazz in my book. They're kind of like Easter eggs. Um, and I think jazz is a book that um, is proleptic. You, you're kind of given the ending at the beginning. So the question then becomes, what's the point of reading a proleptic work? And for me, it goes back to that original point on reading and writing shouldn't be the goal. It should be the tool for a different goal. And I think proleptic writing is very good at you know, sweeping away the, the outcome and that expectation of what's coming and giving you an opportunity to focus on and enjoy the language, the poetry, uh, the beauty of storytelling as its own art form independently of, um, <coughs> of, of a kind of traditional, you know, start, middle and end narrative. So that's the first part of my answer to your question. The second part, you know, being specific about the experience of fathers and sons, I touched on, uh, I touched a little bit on the idea of, um, of Palestine, which has um, been in the media quite a lot recently. I I'd like to delve deeper into this in order to answer your question. So one of the uh, books that um, explores this narrative is a, a book that's been recently produced by a, de a very dear friend of mine named uh, Randa Abdul Fattah, uh, a nonfiction book uh, that she's produced called Coming of Age in the War on Terror. And uh, we recently saw Randa uh, appear on Q&A where she was um, asked a question by an audience member about the conflict in the Middle East, the ongoing conflict and the uh, crisis in Gaza. And uh, the question was framed around this poor dog that um, was afraid of Hamas bombs being dropped on Israel. And Rwanda had to remind the 
audience member that Palestinian children are literally being killed. And in many ways, we, we're often, as Arabs and Muslims, we're often made to feel like even the life of a dog has more value than our, our lives. Um, and Bill Leake, uh, you know, who uh, passed away a few years ago, but, but, but just before he passed away was in a, under a lot of heat because he produced this cartoon of an Aboriginal father not recognizing his own son. Mm. And uh, a lot of people don't remember that Bill Leake had actually made very similar cartoons about Arab and Muslim fathers. Uh, cartoons of Arab and Muslim fathers literally throwing their children into war zones and saying things like, go and win daddy's PR war for him. I think the subtext to this kind of narrative, you know, whether it's about a dog or whether it's about an Aboriginal father not recognizing their son or an, an, an Arab Muslim father not caring about their child and, and being willing to use them as human shields, the subtext is that white men love their children more than men of color do and that they care about their children more than we care about our children. And so there's a, there's an active dehumanization in our relationship to our children through these kinds of uh, white supremacist narratives. And so, uh, in, in many ways, the, the other half of you is, is trying to reclaim and celebrate the beauty and the strength that, uh, men of color, Muslim men, indigenous men, and, um, Arab men have for their children. That is, I remember, um, Going completely off script here. I remember when I first heard about the other half of you, I'd somehow gotten into my head that it was going to be a love story. And in many ways, it is a love story. And I remember when the book arrived, um, my wife read the blurb on the back and she said, oh, no, it doesn't, it doesn't sort of sound like a love story in the very cliched Harlequin <laughs> sort, of, sort of way. But as I read, I, of course, this is a love story. And the love is not limited to a, a central Romeo and Juliet-esque um, linear narrative. This is a book that is so tremendously full of love. And what I also love is um, Banny, he is very much going through a process of discovering love. What does love mean? And how does he, as a man whose identity is constantly evolving, come to understand love? Um I realize I've come about to a question that I'd written much more eloquently, but what I, I really want to ask is, do you have a philosophy of love? Look, I, I really appreciate you asking me this question. You're the first person in all the interviews I've done so far to just want to talk about love mm. as, an, as an idea. And as, a, as, a, as a, what I believe to be a, you, like, I, I, I believe in love as a force that exists outside of the human experience, mm. you know, like I, this is a really weird way to put it, but when I try to explain love um, as something that I think exists outside of human, you know, the human human heart, mm. um, you know, a flower, like when, when a flower doesn't have sun and water, it looks very depressed. It wilts. Yeah. And when it when it's kind of got sunlight and water, it looks like it's actually quite happy. It it um it's kind of like you know it looks like it's kind of bright and shining mm. and smiling almost. And so I think in that way, whether human beings observe it or not, a flower literally loves water and literally loves the sun, mm. you know? And so that's how I think of love. I think of it as this force that exists throughout the entire universe, independently of human beings. And what we do is we, as human beings, is we capture it. You know, we can grab onto it and we can make things with it. We can, we can create um, beauty through this force that it already exists in the universe. So when my son was born, which I detail quite extensively in the book, um, I, I write about how when I look at his face, the, the tears just fall out of my eyes. I remember it wasn't like I was 
you know, upset or even happy. I just remember like I just anytime I looked at him in those moments, those first few seconds of his life, I would just be beaming with um, this kind of energy where it was just falling out of my eyes. I, I describe it in the book as like literally my soul was just falling out of me. And so I, I just think that th- this love just immediately was created. And you, you might, I don't know if you noticed, but there's this one scene where I actually refer to Kalu as a lump. Um, I don't. I think he, Benny, Benny says you lump when he's mm. referring to his son. But the idea of it is like, like babies are such lumps, you know, they're so useless. They, mm. they can't do anything. Human babies, especially, they, they, I think they're one of the most useless species to be born. You know, they're so in, in dependent on their, on their parents for survival and on, on human adults for survival, you know, and they can't do anything except sleep and eat and, you know, expel waste, you know? Mm. And so the idea that they're so useless, but you, you love them so unconditionally just shows you the kind of this idea of, a, of, a, of love that exists so independently of anything that um, we even need to do. It just, it's just kind of, it just comes from uh, this stronger force. And look, I don't, I, I'm worried that I might be sounding a bit too religious here, but I just want to, in my defense, Christopher Hitchens, who was the most famous atheist that pretty much ever lived, um, you know, I remember him saying all the time in his interviews um, that if there's probably one moment in your life where you might actually genuinely believe in a higher power, regardless of whether you're an atheist or a, or a theist, is when your children are born. And I always wondered if that's how he was feeling when his children were born, you know. Uh, I, I, I genuinely think that he was a sincere atheist and that he went to his grave an atheist. But I also um, think that it, it means a lot coming from him to hear him talk about the power of those moments where your children are born, that they can feel quite divine and cosmic. And, and I think it's because love is an inherently divine and cosmic force in the universe. Mm. As you talk about that, it, it occurs to me that the idea we are talking about or the idea we are trying to express is a type of love. And it's now it's really important that we acknowledge right now, like we are communicating, we're having this conversation in English, which is a, a specific colonizer tongue to Australia. And as expansive as it can be in many ways, it can be limiting in others. And we have one word, love, that we're going to try and encapsulate so much with and that there are other languages that have more than one word to encapsulate this idea because what you just described there also sounds very different to the broad narrative of the book where Banny is – I mean, he begins – his story. So he begins by telling Khalil he's going to tell him the story. But the Bani that we meet is not particularly far from the Bani that we left at the end of the Lebs. And he grows and he changes so much. And part of that process is trying to understand a little bit about this thing called love. Um, his family uh, want to arrange him to be married. Um, he wants to chart his own course. He finds love in um, the, the woman he describes to Khalil as the, the girl with the cross. Um, he goes through this cumulative process where he, he seems to almost discover love. Love becomes a process of learning and refining this idea of love. And I don't have a question. I just wanted to acknowledge that we are we are using one word to describe such a large concept. I want to talk back to that because I think you're making some really interesting points. Um, in Arabic, we have 99 words for love. Oh, and um, so um, and you know, it, it's worth pointing out that in the other half of you, I use quite a bit of Arabic. I'm a, I'm a 
I'm bilingual. I feel very privileged to be bilingual. Um, and I can read and write in Arabic as well as English. And so I try to evoke um, the Arabic language and the Arabic literary tradition. I mean, I've spoken a little bit about African-American literature. We've spoken about the European canon a little bit. You know, you, I, I brought up Hamlet. You brought up Romeo and Juliet. Um, you know, uh, uh, Romeo and Juliet comes up a lot because Danny, Danny uses the literary canon to navigate and understand his experience and his place in the world. Um, and I think those kinds of literary references are interwoven throughout the entire book. Similarly, um, I use the, the Arab canon. Um, Layla and Majnun is our Romeo and Juliet. Mm. It's an older text, but, but Bani is constantly referring to um, the story of Layla and Majnun uh, to draw uh, strength and inspiration for, for his own experiences. And then, of course, you, know, you, you would know from having read the book that my son, Khalil, the, the little boy that is actually my son, and the, the boy who Bani talks to in the book is named after the poet, uh, the, Lib the famous Lebanese poet, and the, the, um, uh, the famous Lebanese poet, Khalil Gibran. And I uh, interweave uh, the stories of the prophet. That, that's, the, that's one of Khalil Gibran's most famous books. And the lines of the prophet throughout the, throughout the other half of you. Um, so I, 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 I want what I'd like to talk about now in terms of your, your question, your, your statements about love is, um, there's of, of course the, the love that comes from the experience of fatherhood, but, but the, but the reason it's a love story is because Benny is trying to find the, the person who's going to ultimately be the mother of his child. And um, you, you would know from having read the book that there's three kind of love stories that Benny experiences. Um, and one of them is the experience of being with a girl who is Lebanese Christian, um, which is close but not close enough for Benny's cult. You know, I call, I call my, my, my community a cult in some cases. Or, or Benny, Benny calls them a tribe. But, you know, the, being from a Lebanese Muslim Alawite community, his family immediately rejects um, uh, the Lebanese Christian girl, the girl who wears the cross, and it it devastates Benny. And in his heartbreak, he's kind of he kind of rushes into an arranged marriage with a member of his tribe. And I won't give away too much, but um, to put it briefly, it doesn't go very well to to be forced into a situation like that. Mm. Um, and they're, they're even though on every level of like like box kicking, they're compatible. And as far as the tribe is concerned, they're compatible. Is Benny and Fatima. Um, they're completely, in reality, incompatible, and they're very poorly matched, and it, it, it has it very serious consequences on both of them. I didn't write Benny or Fatima to be good guys or bad guys. I, I try to write them both as quite complex, and so I think you sympathise with both of their, their situations, uh, and and uh, and and I, I think you know you kind of tend to understand how they end up in this situation of being in an arranged marriage that isn't working for either of them, and then ultimately um, Benny meets Ollie. And, um, and uh, Benny, Benny has to uh, kind of work out a way to be with this girl who is white, middle-class, atheist, you know? So, so fundamentally different to his world and his experience as a very poor, you know, a, a kid who came out of poverty, being Arab and Muslim. Um, and so how, how Benny is actually ultimately able to be with the with who he, who at this point in time is the love of his life and how he has to take on his whole community um to 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 find that to be to be the person that he wants to be is i think ultimately what i mean what when what we mean when we say this is a love story and why it resonates with, with stories like romeo and juliet and Layla and majnun 
That's it for part one of this great conversation with Michael Muhammad Ahmed. Muhammad's new novel is The Other Half of You. It's out now from Hachette Publishing. Make sure you stay tuned to The Great Conversations podcast. Part two will be dropping shortly. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunagurra people. The show is pr- produced and presented by Andrew Popel. You can stay in touch. We are on all the socials, Twitter, Insta, Facey. Just look for at Final Draft 2 SER. You can subscribe in your podcast app. It means you will get... Part two of this conversation, a special bonus midweek and a new great conversation with an Australian author every week. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back soon with more great conversations from Final Draft. Hey, as always, wish you happy reading. Bye now.